Now, as has been read for you there in Luke 5 this morning, we continue with what we began to develop last week. And just by way of remembrance, if you were there and hearing verses 1 through um, 7 is what we covered last week. And what we're seeing in the illustration of beginning in verse chapter 4, really, with the preaching of the good news in 43, and then in five one, you see the bridge that is built between the story of the fish with the preaching of the good news in that phrase five one. Um, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him, developing this preaching ministry or the beginning of the preaching ministry of our Lord. And then what transpires in the episode of the fish I put forward last week in our time that what we're looking at quite clearly, and I hope to prove that out in our remaining time, is that we're looking upon a physical illustration or a physical harvest. So there's, there's a harvest taking place of fish that are overwhelming the nets, and it's connected to the preaching ministry of our Lord. Now, again, it's not the fish that he's preaching to. What we're seeing here in his preaching to those who are gathering is an illustration, a physical harvest that speaks to the coming spiritual harvest through the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the fishing episode is all about. For example, we have already seen how Jesus, in the filling of the nets, in overwhelming them with the fish, he displays his sovereignty in gathering them into the nets. He simply is pushed out by Simon, as you recall, and he puts down or lets down his net, and our Lord fills the net with abundance, displaying not chance or fishing strategies, but his sovereignty to Peter and to those who are gathered. This is also not simply a powerful illustration of divine sovereignty in the harvest that is to come through the preaching of the gospel, but likewise, it shows, it speaks how he will sovereignly gather men and women in the gospel of the kingdom. That's what this is about. Now, as we have mentioned also last week and how our Lord here is filling the nets with abundance of fish through his sovereign power, this illustrating, again, men and women, we also need to make mention that the wisdom of God in the display of the preaching of the gospel is necessary for the gathering of men and women into what we would consider the nets or into the gathering of the kingdom of God. In other words, It is the wisdom of God to use means in the accomplishment of His divine purposes or His divine ends. In other words, the preaching of the gospel is the necessary means through which God will gather men and women into His kingdom. This is what's being illustrated in the fish that are filling the nets with great abundance. Yet, as we see with men and women, it isn't simply that they just show up randomly and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through hearing the gospel preached to them. Paul explains this dynamic 
In Romans 10, 14, you don't need to turn there. I just simply read for you this sense of our God's sovereignty as displayed through the Lord Jesus in the gathering of abundance, yet human means being employed in such gathering through the preaching of the word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. Romans 10, 14 poses these questions as Paul asks them rhetorically. Let me read them for you in Romans 10, 14, beginning. He says, how are they to call on him? So again, you're drawing in your mind this illustration between the fish and humans in this dynamic that is unfolding before us in Luke 5. Paul asks, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? You you see the dynamic. It, It isn't throwing away what we're seeing on display here in the illustration of the harvest that indeed it is the sovereignty and the grace of our Lord that will gather men and women, gather you, has gathered you through the gospel of the kingdom. But he employs means to gather you that are necessary. That's why Paul says, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard. He continues, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Finally, he summarizes near verse 17, he says this, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, it is necessary that we share the gospel. And it is this necessary work of preaching the gospel in order that one might be saved, reconciled to God, that we see our Lord performing here in Luke 5. As He is speaking to the crowds, doing the necessary work of preaching, displaying, however, His sovereignty ineffectually calling through that preached Word, laying hold of the human heart, enabling them to believe, persuading them unto His mercy that is granted them through the preaching of the Gospel. And so we see this necessary work of our Lord's, the preaching of the Gospel, where it has a gracious effect particularly upon the life of Simon Peter. Now, as I mentioned last week, there were gathered on the shoreline who it had an effectual um, work upon in the preaching to Simon Peter. It is singling his conversion out. It is singling him out as that disciple who will then, again, by the end of our time this morning, you will see, leaves everything and follows the Lord. This is particularly what we're looking at this morning through Luke 5, is yes, that general preaching of the Lord, and yet it effectually or particularly lay hold of Simon Peter. And we stopped in verse 7, and you have had it read for you a couple of times, and so you've seen Peter's response. But I want us to look more particularly this morning in the next few moments at Simon Peter's response 
to the illustration of the gospel. What is taking place means whereby faith comes. And then at that moment, what is the response of one who hears the gospel? What is the rightful response for each of us in the hearing of the gospel? That's what I want us to look at this morning. So, as we look at the life of Simon Peter for the next few moments, I want us to most broadly see three rightful responses to the gospel. I simply want to give them to you as we walk through the passage, but there are three rightful responses that individuals must have toward the gospel. In the hearing of the gospel, that is, three rightful responses responses to the gospel. Now, last week, it was brought to my attention a couple of different times that at the beginning of our sermon last week, I mentioned So, I admit, I had two, I said three, not written down, and I even circled them for my benefit this morning to make sure. I advertised three responses that I think quite honestly and maybe I should say obviously stand out to us. Portion of Luke 5, 1 through 7, is we're looking at the effectual call how the gospel goes forward in a general pronouncement, but it particularly and effectually lays hold of individuals, that sovereign grace lays hold of them. The Spirit then causes that word particularly to be effectual upon their heart, persuading and enabling them. And this is what we see in Peter. Now we're moving to this point where Peter has been effectually called. He's seeing things take place in front of him through this physical illustration in coordination with the preaching content of the gospel. He's piecing these two things together. And we move this morning from from the sense of effectual call, what's, what's laying hold of Peter in opening his eyes, enabling him, renewing his said and illustrated. And we move to this other aspect, no hearing of the gospel, repent and believe, genuine conversion. There are three then rightful responses in the hearing of the gospel under this consideration of conversion that I'd like to state. Number one, the first in our passage of rightful responses to the gospel when it is heard is, number one, a response of repentance. A response. This is the rightful response in the hearing of the gospel is repentance. Notice Peter's response to the provision of the fish, and it's rather obvious. Verse 8, fell down at Jesus' knees. Right there already you see a tremendous what was being preached with what now he is witnessing. Notice how telling his response is in pairing the illustration together with the gospel content that is being preached to him and, and, and what that meant for Peter. It, it's very telling in his response. Notice what he said. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, that is telling this sense of sinfulness and this issue of embarrassment for Peter to say, depart from me. He didn't, you notice what he didn't say there in the abundance of the fish. We're going to be rich. Right? In the abundance of the, right, they're earning, they're living by the gathering of these fish. This is a good morning. 
They fished all night. They're frustrated and upset, discouraged because they didn't have any. But you see, the significance is clear to Peter. He immediately feels a sense of his own shallowness. He now understands in this moment to say such things as depart from me. For I am, and he puts it in a clear category of contrast between him and who stands before him. I am a sinful man. He now understands between the preaching of the gospel and the illustration of the fish, he understands that the gospel is provisionary. He no longer perceives Jesus at that moment as he did earlier. Notice what he perceived our Lord as doing as we looked last week. Verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And we noted last week Simon's frustration with even this recommendation. Because again, he was perceiving it as some type of unnecessary or novice advice. He sees it simply as a fishing episode. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, again, in coordination with Master, right? So he's yielding to some measure of authority. He calls him Master, one who is known, teaching, authority. At your word, Master, I will let down the nets to him who seemed to have authority. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And he put it in a clear contrast. Once again, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In other words, he no longer perceives Jesus as a master teacher, but one who knows very little about fishing. He no longer sees, rather through the miracle of the fish, Peter or a holy God. Earlier, you see the movement in the passage. How do we know so much is taking place in this little confrontation of blessing between Jesus and Peter? Notice how the language immediately shifts. In frustration of verse 5, as I noted for you just a moment ago, he called him Master. After the episode of the fish, the language has moved to Lord. Again, one commentator fills out what's taking place in the life of Simon Peter through this abundant oval unto Peter who was reluctant. He says, quote, It is the master whose attitude at that point early on in the fishing episode, fine, I will acquiesce, I will do, you must in this category be obeyed. However, the writer concludes, whose holiness causes moral agony to the sinner. This is the contrast between Simon and Jesus through the illustration of the fish. 
He knew immediately as the Spirit makes clear to him in the abundant blessing of the fish, this goes well beyond fishing. And who stands before him in this boat is not the best fisherman that ever lived and is not his co-pilot, but is his Lord whose holiness brings him to his knees and causes him to confess he is simply at the revelation of our Lord, expresses the sense of unworthiness and embarrassment at his behavior before our Lord. You see, when the contrast between our sinfulness and Jesus' holiness is made plain to each of us, as it is for Peter here in this episode of the fishing, but beyond Peter in the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God is made plain and the gospel is made clear to us Our sinfulness, the contrast between our sinfulness and Jesus' holiness, when it is so made plain, the necessary response, when it is made plain, men and women, this is what we see in the episode with Peter and Jesus in the boat. Peter fell on his knees. I knew that there was more to it than fish. The Lord of all the universe was in the boat, and Peter was a sinner. We define repentance unto life this way. Again, I am putting forward to you that, yes, this is a unique situation, or it's a particular situation with Peter in the boat. not unique to Peter but is necessary for each of us this morning in the hearing of repentance. But what would we define repentance of the gospel? When we hear the preaching of the gospel, to fall at Jesus, of His holiness and His provision, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is Repentance. And it is the necessary response to the gospel. What is repentance further defined as? Well, we define repentance into life for each of our sakes this way. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner... Now again, place yourself, as I conclude this definition, place yourself in the hearing of the gospel. Asking yourself the necessary questions of application to hearing the gospel, to the reading, but especially the preaching of the word of God. Am I here? Am I where Peter is? Do I respond the way that Peter is responding? Have I repented of my sins? Am I repentant? Do I embrace that I am sinful and that only Christ is truly holy? Let me then read the definition as we kind of contextualize ourselves 
and ask ourselves the necessary questions of application. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, that is, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehend this is Peter in the boat, a true sense of sin, depart from me. Don't even be in my boat any longer. Don't, you have to flee. You have to go. I, in contrast to you, it is so clear, I am a sinner. Thus, repentance is when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin. This is the activity of Peter. Depart from me. This is repentance. A sinner does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it and unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. This is how we define repentance. This is the repentance that we see in Peter. This final portion of our definition with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You see very clearly where we will end verse 11. They left everything and followed him. This is the life of conversion. This is the necessary response to the proclamation of the gospel. Not, hey, that's pretty good. I'll take some of that. If this is able to get me where I truly want to be, then perhaps it is helpful. These are not repentant. But repentance, as we see in Peter, is a true sense of your sin and misery. A true and rightful apprehension of the mercy of God being offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ and a hatred and grief over your own sense of sinfulness. Depart from me. I am sinful, yet with full purpose as one turns unto God and an endeavor after new obedience. This is what we see in the passage with Peter immediately as he sees the overflowing abundance of the gospel. Finally, again, before I give you number two, I wish to press further. We must acknowledge each of us that such a response of repentance is not for Peter alone. Such a response of repentance is for everyone who truly follows after Christ as their Lord. Secondly, as we see in Peter here, again, through the preaching of the gospel that our Lord is performing, the abundant illustration that physically illustrates the spiritual harvest that is coming through the proclamation of the gospel, more narrowly, how it's evidenced directly in the life of Simon Peter, and then the conversion that will come about through Peter himself as we see a response of repentance when the gospel is truly perceived.
the second rightful response to the hearing of the gospel is one of wonder. The rightful response to the hearing of the gospel that we see in the text, which again may be particular here, but is not to be unique, is a sense of wonder. Look in the passage with me at verse 9 as it continues from Peter's repentance, and we'll join Peter again at the end of verse 10. But there's others who are present, and they see the illustration. They see the power. They were there for the preaching. They, they, They see the entire scene. And look at the response that is added. Verse 9, and all who were with him were a skin. And so also, he names a couple partners who were winds of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And the illustration of full provision and abundance that Peter perhaps a couple of boats upon the water at that point in time, exactly how much time has elapsed in this episode is unclear. But but it makes clear, zeroing in on Peter, James, and John, that the three, as well as others who were there, were filled with wonder at the episode that lie before them. They're astonished at what they're laying hold of. Now, again... Not sure. If we were to go over to Mark 1, we won't. But if we were, you you can note there, there's the parallel account in the Gospels. So as you see, the the synoptic Gospels telling of the same story between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and how those stories stack up and where they're located in their Gospels, so on and so forth. If you were over in Mark 1, it's as as necessary or or as natural to Mark, it's very short. All the episodes are very short. Um, and, and so, thus, the gospel is only 16 chapters, of which Luke then makes much more uh, uh, lengthy. But in that short little episode with Mark, it's unsure of, it says that he went a little bit further. That is, our Lord went a little bit further and then engaged um, uh, James and John. Now, exactly how much time elapsed in this particular episode, again, we're unsure Yet, nonetheless, as Luke is telling it, in proximity somehow, James and John are present. And, and either uh, discussion takes place a little bit further, but, and, then, and then as Luke writes his account, he says, here's the summary of the events. They were astonished, just like Peter was, or at the exact same second, they were astonished, whether they were able to look on or so forth, or maybe even in verse 7 and 10, they're the partners. Um, again, it doesn't seem to be the case necessarily in Mark 1, but exactly how that works out on the shoreline there, not exactly told in perfect clarity. But verse 7, we see they signaled to their partners uh, in the other boat to come and help them. Perhaps as it drops down to verse 10, it, it interprets itself that it, those were James and John, the partners who were there and able to bring their boat about and aid with the fish. Nonetheless, the point being, All who were there for this exposition, all who were there for this physical illustration of the spiritual harvest that comes through the preaching of the gospel were filled with wonder. The sense of wonder or astonishment at the episode 
And this is important for us to note as well as we hear the preaching of the gospel. The sense of wonder on the shoreline or astonishment among the men who were gathered is established upon the fact that there is simply no rational explanation for this extraordinary provision. There is no simple, rational explanation for this extraordinary provision. This moves all who witnessed this abundance to be filled with wonder. This moves Peter from saying, Master, fisherman, no, to Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In other words, in this physical illustration, closed a large number. Their nets were breaking. They signaled they filled both boats. How much is going on between boats? How much is going on? They filled them so much that the boats began to sanation to it which moves everyone present to be filled with wonder at the overflowing abundance which is sovereignly wrought apart from that clear and rational explanation. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign and He is gracious. He is here to bring about provision full and absolute blessing. This spiritual abundance that is being paralleled here through the physical abundance being brought about through the preaching of the gospel, as we mentioned last week, this being the fullness of the gospel on display. And the men who are astonished that there's no rational explanation is the same to each of us in hearing of the gospel of grace. It cannot be earned. It isn't merited. What is astonishing about the gospel is that it is wholly received and rested upon through faith alone. This is what's astonishing. Beyond that simple rational explanation, do and live. If you do this, maybe you can merit. Rather, the gospel comes and says, live and do this. It cannot be earned or merited, but the gospel is wholly received and rested upon through faith alone. This is the astonishment or wonder that each of us ought to have when considering the abundance and overflow of blessing we have received in the simplicity of the gospel. The rightful response to such an abundance of blessing without looking inward at merit and somehow rationalizing that we have indeed earned it but rather looking out and unto our Lord who gained it and then provided it. The rightful response to such an abundance of blessing with no rational basis for why me in the gospel is one of astonishment, one of wonder. And this sense of wonder 
this sense of astonishment to one who is repentant and receiving the gospel of the Lord doesn't just stop there. Rather, that sense of astonishment and wonder has feet to it. It mobilizes. It moves. It acts upon the sinner so to impart life that the sinner might endeavor after full purpose of new obedience. That sense of repentance, depart from me. I'm a sinner undone. It moves to why me and an astonishment that the grace of God abundantly overflowed to me. And there is no rational basis as to why. And with that sense of wonder and astonishment, a sinner is mobilized. With full purpose after and an endeavor to seek a life of new obedience. In other words, astonishment gives way to gratitude, obedience, and service. This is what we see in the episode of the gospel as we witness it effectually working upon the lives of these men here. They're moved from astonishment to thirdly and finally. This is our third and rightful response to the gospel. The first one being simply that of repentance of what we see in Peter and the others what we see of wonder and astonishment. And yet, as we know, with each of us in the gospel, it doesn't simply astonish us to fall on the ground and never move again. It fills with wonder and then it leads, thirdly, to obedience. The rightful response to the gospel that we see in this text is number three. The rightful response to the gospel is obedience and service. This is the rightful response. Not the unique one, but the rightful one. Notice in the passage where we see this response of obedience. So here, by the time we have Peter, we're picking back up with our Lord engaging Simon. So if you look in your, think in your episode here of what's taking place between 8 through 10, you have Simon, right? At this point, he has fallen down at the knees of the Lord. He has professed his sense of sinfulness. He is a sinful man. There is no question in his mind. Everything is made plain to Peter at this point in time, the great contrast of the way he perceived Jesus as acting and what he has now found out, indeed, who Jesus truly is, O oh Lord. So he's at this point in the scene. Now, there's others around who are filled with the same sense of wonder that Peter has at the Lord. And now where we've left Peter in that same situation of verse 8, on his knees before the Lord, confessing his sense of sinfulness and embarrassment, indeed shame. And now we see our Lord pick up there and respond to Simon. So you have Simon here prostrate or confessing his sin. And notice our Lord's response. And Jesus said to him, or said to Simon, do not be afraid. Now listen to the, to the two in, in, in coordination and skipping the astonishment and wonder of others present. Listen to what's taking place here. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do not be afraid. 
Jesus speaks a word directly to Peter, directly to the repentant. He speaks a word of mercy and grace. Again, this is not unique, but it is the provision of the gospel. Jesus speaks a word of mercy and grace to the repentant. Depart from me, you should leave. That is true. Certainly our Lord would have grounds. The contrast is clear. We the sinner, he the holy. Depart from me. But to the repentant, to each of us who are indeed repentant, who out of a true sense of our sin and shame, in apprehension of the mercy of God held out to us in Christ, do with grief and hatred for our sin, do we do turn from it and unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience? He does speak a word of mercy and grace. In other words, He forgives and delivers. Necessary also, as you see in His merciful comment, do not fear. This response of do not fear functions in our passage as a clear statement of forgiveness to Peter. If it it wasn't, Peter would have great grounds indeed to fear. If he was not forgiven. But our Lord, in mercy to the repentant, speaks a word of forgiveness. But notice there is more to each of us in the promise of forgiveness, in the washing of our sins, away from us, in the reception of sinners by grace. There is more that comes than a simple word, and yet indeed merciful, with no rational explanation, and full of grace. He does provide a statement of forgiveness, but it also further comes with a forward-looking purpose and command for your life. It isn't a simple, do not fear, I'll see you later. It comes as we see here with Peter to each of us. Do not fear from now on. Notice the passage with me if you see in the full response of our Lord. And you notice the first portion again. Depart from me. I'm sinful, O Lord. Jesus said back to him, do not be afraid. But then he says, from now on, to to Peter on his knees, sitting before the Lord. The Lord says to Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, after this amazing, astonishing, revealing, intense and gracious episode, they left everything and followed him. You see, Jesus declares to Peter in this episode of repentance through the preaching and then the full physical illustration of the spiritual harvest and work as exemplified or displayed in Simon himself. Jesus declares to Peter, I'm not departing from you. But neither are you going to depart from me. This is the call upon conversion. This is the call to the repentant. This is Jesus who is not simply a good advisor or helpful life coach, but indeed who is your Lord. To the repentant is a word of mercy, grace, and forgiveness, and a life that must be lived with purpose after new obedience to the command of Christ. Jesus is not departing from Peter, and he is taking Peter unto himself. Jesus is calling the repentant Peter, and indeed all who repent and place their faith upon Christ alone. He is calling each to a new life to be lived before him. This is the new stage that begins in each of our lives at the point of repentance and faith that comes to rest upon and receive all of Christ as he has freely offered to you in the gospel. This is the new stage that begins in your life. If there is no stage, if there is no obedient mobilization, if there is no movement of gratitude, if there is absolutely no difference between pre-conversion and our life lived as those converted unto Christ through grace, by faith alone, if there is no new stage, if there is no sense of call and purpose, we must travel back through this text. Question our sense of repentance. The sobriety of it, the seriousness of it, the sincerity of it, the saving grace of it. Again, does the gospel at any point in our lives caused us to be stirred with a sense of wonder? Moved with a sense of astonishment that there is no rational grounds for why I have been adopted, added to that number, and I'm given full rights and privileges of all the children of God. And how will I know my repentance, that sense of conversion, that sense of wonder and astonishment by the life that I have since proceeded to live? This is the new stage that begins in each of our lives 
when we meet Jesus in the gospel as he is freely offered to us, not as we want to hear him, not as we want to conceive of him, but as he is freely offered to us. To be sure, as with Simon, we'll see maturity through the, through the Gospels, growth and understanding. No doubt there is a movement of progression and maturity. So to be sure, as with Simon, the new stage or the new activity does not begin in its full sense of maturity immediately in our lives. But indeed, we are all with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience, wholly spotless and perfectly united to the Lord in a manner of sinless perfection. We all know that simply is not the case. Indeed, that is not even offered to us in this age. But there is Maybe not a full sense of new activity. Maybe not a full sense of maturity. But there is most surely some gracious sense immediately. That Paul, as he declares in 1 Corinthians 5, we are new creatures in Christ. There is surely felt some sense of appetite for the word of God that laid hold of you. There is some measure of desire for Christian growth and harmony and unity in the body of Christ. There is some measure of joy that is felt in the communion of the saints. There is in some measure an anticipation for the Lord's Supper. Again, as with Simon, there's not a full sense immediately, but in surely there is indeed some sense. This we see in the men there at that point. In the text as we finally conclude, from now on, you will. Right? That's the gracious call and cost of discipleship that is placed upon each and every one who joined Peter in verse 8. I am a sinful individual. It's me. It's me, not you, who needs to change. And our Lord does offer up grace and forgiveness. Do not be afraid. I'm not going anywhere. And by the way, from now on, the cost and call of discipleship concludes in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, as we had already mentioned, quite an episode from preaching in chapter 4 to illustrating in chapter 5, laying hold and astonishment of the men who were witnessing the full contents of what was being disclosed. What did they do with their lives? They simply go back to fishing again in a way that they were unchanged. No, they left everything and followed him.
I have two final questions as we conclude then from this episode. Are you sure, individual, are you sure that in the hearing of the gospel, as Christ is so freely offered to you therein, are you sure that you have repented of your sin? Are you sure that you have a sense of your sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ? You recognize with grief and hatred of that same sin that you find such pleasure in. You've turned from it, and you, by grace, endeavor with full purpose to follow after new obedience in life. Secondly, have you done that? Have you continued in by relying upon the Spirit of God, feasting upon the Word of God, have you continued in grateful obedience and service and light of the gracious call of Christ? It looks differently indeed in your particular lives, each and one unique. The application of they left everything and followed after him. Certainly this has a part in the narrative of the calling of the disciples. Nonetheless, as one, a disciple, a Christian, is Jesus the Lord, Savior? Or have we mistakenly put him in the place of advisory role? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for pictures of the gospel touching and impacting very real individual lives.